We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And away we go, episode 132 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, August 27th, 2021, the day before the preseason finale for the Washington football team. Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field, Saturday evening at 6. Now, do you say Saturday evening or Saturday night for a 6 o'clock start? I say Saturday evening. My personal cutoff for evening versus night is the 6 o'clock hour, but I feel like we need an official ruling on that. Anyway, I have a loaded show for you on the Washington football team. Plenty of content to take you into the weekend in fine fashion. Three things that I want to see from Washington in its preseason finale. I'll give those to you later in the show. Next segment, we will talk Ryan Fitzpatrick and Scott Turner. Ryan and Scott, Scott and Ryan, Fitzy and Scotty, Scotty and Fitzy. How are they getting along? Will this be a marriage made in heaven? If you have been a fan of the team currently known as the Washington football team for a while, you know that a quarterback working well with his offensive coordinator matters a lot and things can get ugly when the QB and the OC don't get along. CRG3 and Kyle Shanahan, what awaits us? with the Fitzpatrick-Turner partnership. Scott spoke via post-practice press conference on Thursday, talked a lot about Fitz, also said some good stuff regarding Curtis Samuel. Also at a post-practice press conference on Thursday for the Washington football team was Ron Rivera pulling back the curtain on his current philosophy regarding roster construction for the Washington football team as we approach the cut down to 53 this Tuesday, 4 p.m. Eastern, the deadline by which each NFL team must cut down to 53 players. I want to get into what Ron had to say, especially the balancing act 
that he's trying to pull off right now with Washington when it comes to trying to both rebuild and contend at the same time. Also, we'll take a look at where Washington is at with its tight ends off releasing Tameric Hemingway on Thursday morning. The Nationals, well, they lost at the Miami Marlins 7-5 on Thursday night. Juan Soto did hit a moonshot of a home run, but Patrick Corbin got wrecked. Nothing mattered more than that. He is a complete mess. His season continues to be a giant fail. He was coming off a really good start, was facing one of the worst hitting teams in the majors at one of the more pitcher-friendly ballparks in the majors, and yet he allowed six runs in three innings. I will sound off on that and more with the Nats. Shockingly, an Oriole starter who had been worse than Corbin this season somehow killed it on Thursday afternoon. Keegan Aiken lights out in a 13-1 win over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. As yes, the O's have won two consecutive games, a winning streak for the Birds. Uh, We will properly commemorate that. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. A kind and gentle reminder to you, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing so. Subscribing costs you nothing, El Zilcho, but it does help out the podcast a lot. And you never have to worry about remembering to search for the podcast or seek out the podcast or download the podcast. The pod will be there waiting for you automatically. It'll be automatically downloaded. Uh, Also, if you haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating and or haven't yet written like a one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast, uh, please consider doing so. Those things uh, cost you nothing, take very little time, and they do help out the cause quite a bit. And I thank you for doing those things. Email from James in Alaska. Writes James, I think a large portion of your fans want to know the answer to this. When do you sleep? (laughs) I heard you say you were recording at like 1.15 a.m. recently. Do you go to bed at 5 p.m.? Do you go to bed at 8, then do the podcast, then go back to sleep? What's the Galdi schedule? I spend way too much time thinking about this. Well, thank you for the email, James. I appreciate that. Uh, I guess I would say this. My sleep schedule is uh, all over the place. Basically, I sleep when I can. In fact, you might say that I have sleep flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. But because I do this podcast and also the Nats Chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman, I'm up most nights watching these Nats games and preparing for the two podcasts, and then taping the two podcasts. So I don't normally go to bed until at least two or three in the morning, at least. Uh, But the problem is I have two young kids, and my wife's a teacher, so I'm up by like seven each morning. And if the day happens to be a gym day, I go to the gym when it opens, and while everyone is still sleeping, so I don't have to worry about, you know, watching anybody. So on those days, I go to bed at like two or three in the morning, wake up at four, pound some black coffee, I always have my coffee black because once you go black, you never go back, at least when it comes to coffee. I get to the gym around 5, get home by like 7.30, and then hopefully nap at some point during the day. Like on Thursday, I went to bed at about 2.45 a.m., and my alarm went off at 3.58 a.m. When it comes to sleep deficit, I have a deficit worse 
than the national deficit. But things will be better once that season ends uh, just a little more than a month to go. Uh, but yeah, man, my sleep schedule, uh, not so good. I'm not really a huge fan of talking about this because when you talk about this stuff, it can sound like you're complaining or like you're trying to tell everyone how hard you work. Like, oh, look at me. I work so hard. Feel sorry for me. Praise me. I'm not trying to do any of that, okay? One of my biggest pet peeves with people in the media is people in the media complaining about their jobs or people in the media talking about how hard they work. Nobody cares, okay? Nobody wants to hear this stuff from people in the media. It's like what Dr. Rick says in those progressive commercials. You woke up early, no one cares, okay? That's so true. Everyone has a story about how hard they work. Nobody wants to hear that story, okay? By the way, I love those Dr. Rick commercials. Email from Dr. CCB regarding my four-year-old son being really into landscaping. Yeah, as I told you, his uh, two favorite birthday gifts were a toy leaf blower and a toy trimmer. As I also said, it's too bad that there isn't a cartoon about a landscaper. Well, writes the good doctor, I know you said that your son is infatuated with landscapers. The closest cartoon that I can think of is Bob the Builder. Although it's not 100% cutting, shaping, or trimming yards, it is bulldozing and building on farmland, homes, and construction sites. The cartoon ran for about 20 years, but there are tons of episodes on YouTube if he is interested. Switching gears a bit, I watched some of the game on Friday night, and I think Jarrett Patterson is a hidden gem. He's like a utility knife. He runs with vision. He can catch balls as a receiver, and he can even run back punts. Yeah, it was a kickoff, but whatever. Now I know it's a small sample size, but I think the skins definitely want to have him as a part of the 53-man roster. Well, thank you for the email, doctor. Man, I've noticed we have a lot of doctors who listen to this podcast. Yeah, I totally agree with you about Jared Patterson. I think that he's making Washington season opening 53-man roster. The only question is whether Washington keeps three running backs or four. In other words, does Peyton Barber still make the team. Uh, Patterson, by the way, is tied for fourth in the NFL in all-purpose yards so far this preseason at 203. See, that's the thing with Patterson, and Dr. CCB hit on this. He's not just a ball carrier. He can catch passes. Uh, As we saw in the preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field last Friday night, he can return kicks, 37-yard kickoff return in the third quarter. You might say that Jared Patterson offers, wait for it, position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex, your favorite thing. Well, as Jared Patterson offers position flex, John Grandland of Real Broker offers commission flex. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. John G. is changing the game with his groundbreaking concept of commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's simple, flexible, Commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. John Grandlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Grandlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. 
for free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. John G is a great guy, big Washington football team fan, big Nats fan as well, and he understands DMV real estate. Call John G now, 703-537-6747. When you talk to John Grandlin, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747 or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. All right, so barring something unforeseen, barring something shocking, Ryan Fitzpatrick will be the Washington football team starting quarterback for week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. But that still has not been declared by Ron Rivera. In fact, Ron Rivera on Saturday at his day after the game Zoom press conference following the preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night, was asked whether he was able to say that Fitzpatrick is Washington's starting quarterback for week one, and Ron would not make the proclamation. Ron, at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, was asked the following by Stephen Wino of the Associated Press, and then you'll hear Ron's answer. A lot of coaches around the league are are, are, uh, are naming starting quarterbacks. Did you ever feel a need to tell your players yes. that it was Ryan Fitzpatrick? Did you ever feel needed for that during this camp? Yes, there'll be a proper moment when I sit down and talk about the guys that are going to start for this team. But that'll be a moment for for, for, for us, you know, for the team. And 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 you know, I like to do that. I like to let the guys know who's who's our starters. I think that's important. Um, I, I've been in some situations. Uh, and it was Cam Newton's first year. And when it was time, I got in front of the team and told him he was going to be our guy. And uh, I think that's, that's something that, that, that I need to tell everybody as opposed to leaking out. All right, so that to me actually makes sense, and I'm fine with what Ron had to say there. Ron wants to name Ryan Fitzpatrick as Washington's QB1 in a certain way, in a more formal way in front of the team, as opposed to at some press conference. And I can respect that. Look, the starting quarterback of an NFL team is a special position. Quarterback, to me, is the most important position in all of team sports. No singular position in any other major team sport matters as much as quarterback in football. The only one that comes close to me is goaltender in hockey. And so if Ron wants to name Fitzy as Washington's starting quarterback, in a specific way. I'm fine with that. What matters most, of course, is how Fitzpatrick plays this coming season. And nothing may matter more regarding that than how well Fitzpatrick and Scott Turner work together. Scott spoke 
via post-practice press conference on Thursday. And the first question that he was asked was about how things are going between himself and Fitzpatrick. Uh, it's been great. You know, Ryan obviously is a very smart player um, and has a lot of experience. You know, he's played in a lot of different offenses. He, um, you know, he hasn't played in this system. And, my, and what I mean by this system is just like the way we call plays, the verbiage. It's like another language, basically. Um, you know, some of the concepts we run, uh, he hadn't been uh, familiar with. But like through the course of the offseason, um, you know, he kind of gave everything a chance and he's come back and said, Hey, you know, I like this and I, I get it. I get where it's coming from now. And just, it took reps, you know, it's, I'm grateful that we had an off season this year. We were able to do that kind of stuff. Um, and then he said, Hey, you know, I've done this before. And, and I said, sure, let's take a look at it. And he's got, he's got clips and we'll look at it. And, you know, it fits our guys. Some stuff he's done doesn't necessarily fit us, but yeah, it's been a work in progress. And when you got a guy with that much experience, um, you know, you listen to him, it's a different, it's a different dynamic than maybe some other situations. So keep in mind, Fitzpatrick and Turner are essentially the same age. Fitzpatrick will turn 39 on November 24th. Turner turned 39 on August 7th. But whereas this coming season will only be Scott Turner's second full season as an NFL offensive coordinator, this coming season will be Fitzpatrick's 17th season as an NFL quarterback. So there is that potential for Fitzpatrick to big brother Turner, even though Fitzpatrick is younger than Turner. But it's also important that Turner listens to Fitzpatrick because I think Fitzpatrick knows what he's talking about. Here was Scott on Thursday on how much freedom he gives to Fitzpatrick. Yeah, there's some. It's all really like, you know, some stuff happens in practice and it's a little bit more uh, freewheeling, I guess, at practice. And then when you zone in and you're playing a spe- specific team um, and it's game plan and you, ca- you kind of know what to expect, um, there'll be like some parameters or some plays of, hey, if we get this, do that, or, or certain types of things um, as far as that goes. When it comes to what Scott Turner's offense is, I feel like we still don't totally know. We have some ideas. He likes to throw the ball quite a bit on first downs. That's great. He's a big believer in pre-snap motion and shifting. That's great. But given the overall terrible quarterback play for Washington last season, it's hard to judge what Scott's offense is, whether he's a great play caller, etc. Remember, the Washington football team in the 2021 regular season was number 32 in the NFL, dead last in team total QBR per ESPN at 39.7. We can say this, Scott called a heck of a game in that loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round. That game wasn't just about Taylor Heineke being really good. That game also was about pass catchers running wide open. And Scott Turner, in a lot of ways, outcoached the Bucks' great defensive coordinator, the former Washington safety, Todd Bowles. Scott on Thursday on Ryan Fitzpatrick playing within the offense, whatever it is, as opposed to taking too many chances. It's just go throw the ball where it's supposed to go. You know, that's what it comes down to. We have a lot of plays that are designed to get down the field, but sometimes they cover it, you know, and and you throw a check down and you get 10 yards and you go go on again. We can call shot plays um, more and more, you know, and that's, and that's what it is. And that's really to all of our quarterbacks. It's not just, Hey, we got to, we got to do a great job of throwing the ball down the field more. It's just, Hey, these are the plays and, and read it out and, put the ball where it's supposed to go. And if you, if you keep stacking enough good decisions, then you're going to move the ball and score points. Now, of course, something that would help Fitzpatrick's and the Washington football team's cause would be a healthy and productive Curtis Samuel. 
Uh, no, he did not fully practice on Thursday. Samuel and William Jackson III were, again, doing work on a side field. Samuel is coming off a groin injury that has led to the longest ramp-up in the history of ramp-ups. Jackson is coming off a leg injury, what Ron Rivera has called a Charlie horse. The side field truly has become Curtis Samuel's domain. He is now the landlord of the side field. Uh, Of course, all that matters is that he's good to go come week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. Scott Turner knows Curtis Samuel well. Samuel spent his first four seasons with the Carolina Panthers, who took him in the second round of the 2017 NFL Draft out of Ohio State. Scott was the Panthers' quarterbacks coach in 2018 and 2019. Also served as interim offensive coordinator for the Panthers in 2019 after Ron Rivera got fired as Panthers head coach after, yes, a loss to Washington. Scott on Thursday on Samuel. Uh, you know, Curtis is a special guy. He can do he can do everything. He's physical. He's fast. Um, you know, he's very intelligent. You know, there's a lot of guys that, you know, maybe have the skill set to kind of be versatile, but the mental, they can't handle, you know, moving around just because it's hard, you know, to play. It's hard to play one position in this league, much less kind of multiple. Um, but he is more than able to do that as a very good memory and recall. Um so just, you know, I, t- I talk to him every day and say, just get healthy, man. We, we're ready for you when you come back. So the biggest thing is, you know, we just want him to, when he is healthy, he comes back and he stays back. You know, it's not a deal where we try to get him back too soon and then all of a sudden, and when you get soft tissue deals, you know, you can get into a little bit of that. So just just get him back um, to full speed and, and where he's ready to go and we hit the ground running and, and uh, he stays healthy. Yes, the last thing we want is Paul Richardson 2.0 when it comes to the Curtis Samuel signing. What about, though, all of these practices sans Samuel? Does it matter that this offense could take the field in week one having barely practiced with Samuel this summer? More from Scott. I mean, it it fits within our offense, so it's nothing. It it won't be a big deal for the other guys. Um, We'll, uh, you know, we have some stuff that we haven't done too much of, um, that we'll get to, you know, once he gets back and, you know, I, I'm eager to do it, but other than that, it's, it's not, it won't be an adjustment for our guys. We'll be, we'll be fine. Um, it's just a matter of him being healthy. Yes, it is. Scott Turner, like Ron Rivera, not sounding worried at all about the Curtis Samuel situation. Well, the health of your skin is something that you don't necessarily have to be worried about, but you should be mindful of, especially given that we're out in the sun a lot this time of year. If you are having issues with or have concerns about your skin, always know that a big supporter of this podcast and a big fan of the Washington football team, Dr. George Verghese, is there for you. Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting-edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. If you or someone you know is dealing with skin cancer, we hope that you or that someone you know is doing well, but also, you want to listen up to this. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options and understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. 
Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. So this Tuesday, August 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern is the deadline by which each NFL team must cut down to 53 players. We did have a notable cut by the Washington football team on Thursday morning. Washington released tight end Tameric Hemingway and signed center John Toth who the team had released on Tuesday. Uh, You know, not to make uh, too big of a deal out of this, you know, Tamara Hemingway isn't Jerry Smith, but uh, this was, I thought, a notable cut by Washington. So Hemingway pretty much had a disastrous night in Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots on August 12th. He had major problems blocking. You may recall in that game, Taylor Heineke taking a second quarter, first and 10 sack for a seven-yard loss. The sack was by edge rusher to Sean Bauer, who abused Tamara Hemingway in pass blocking, and Hemingway got run over onto his back in pass blocking in the fourth quarter. And then Hemingway, after the game, ended up entering concussion protocol. He did not play in Washington's preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field last Friday night. And so Washington now has, at tight end, Logan Thomas, John Bates, Samus Reyes, Ricky Seals-Jones, and Caleb Wilson. Rod Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Thursday on Washington's tight ends group now that Hemingway has been released. And you'll also hear Ron reference this center who the team signed back, John Toth. Well, you know, we feel pretty good about the the, the young group of guys we have. Um, You know, we feel we'll we'll be able to get more than enough reps out of all of them. But really, we, 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 we had to bring a young guy back on the offensive line as well. And we just feel going into the game, you know, the extra offensive lineman is, is a little bit more of a concern. Yeah, so Ron laid it out pretty clearly there. The 2021 season would be Hemingway's age 28 season. Washington initially signed Hemingway last September 17th to the team's practice squad. He spent the rest of the 2020 season with Washington, appeared in eight regular season games, had one reception for 10 yards on two targets. He was placed on the reserve injured list last December 9th due to a reported dislocated wrist that was suffered in that 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in Week 13. Hemingway was taken by the Los Angeles Rams in the sixth round of the 2016 NFL Draft out of South Carolina State. He, prior to his time with Washington, had spent time with the Rams, the Denver Broncos, and, wait for it, the Carolina Panthers. More from Ron on Thursday on releasing Tamara Hemingway. I think a guy like him, you know, to do it now is fine because, again, he knows the system and he's a guy that, you know, we most certainly bring back because he's on our short list because he knows it. Um, you know, he was, he was, he wasn't going to make it originally, you know, at the end of the camp. And so looking at some of the positions we had to really look at to get to the 80 number, we wanted to bring back an offensive lineman. And, Again, just knowing who he is, and he's done it for us before. He is a guy that we do have on the short list, though. 
So if Washington is going to keep three tight ends on the season opening 53-man roster, and I don't think that that's a given due to Washington potentially keeping seven receivers, I do think there's an argument for keeping seven receivers in just two tight ends. But in general, you keep three tight ends. So if Washington is going to keep three tight ends on the season opening 53-man roster, Logan Thomas and John Bates are givens. And that third tight end spot comes down to Samus Reyes and Ricky Seals-Jones. Can you practice squad Samus Reyes? That's the question. I mean, on the one hand, you would say, well, why the heck not? He had never played football at any meaningful level up until this preseason. But he is an athletic freak. And Ron Rivera, after Reyes' very first game, that preseason opening loss at the Patriots, said that Samus Reyes already may have been Washington's most physical tight end. You don't say that about someone and then say, well, we can just get the guy through waivers. Maybe you can, but (laughs) why are you putting that out there if you plan on trying to sneak the guy through waivers? Uh, Ricky Seals-Jones is interesting. We haven't talked about him much. So Ricky Seals-Jones is an experienced tight end. Washington signed him as an unrestricted free agent on May 25th. The 2021 season would be his age 26 season. Seals Jones over 41 career regular season games in his four NFL seasons. So 2017 through 2020, 60 receptions for 773 yards and eight touchdowns on 120 targets. He in the 2019 season for the Cleveland Browns had 14 receptions for 229 yards and four touchdowns on 22 targets. Now, Ricky Seals Jones was a receiver at Texas A&M, he is what you call a move tight end in the NFL. A move tight end is essentially a pure pass catching tight end. So you could have Logan Thomas as your TE1, John Bates as more of your blocking tight end, and Ricky Sills-Jones as more of a pass catching tight end with Samus Reyes on the practice squad. That may be the potential route that Washington takes at tight end. Ricky Sills-Jones entered the NFL as an undrafted free agent out of Texas A&M with the Arizona Cardinals in May 2017. He spent the 2017 and 2018 seasons with the Cardinals, the 2019 season with the Cleveland Browns, and the 2020 season with the Kansas City Chiefs. So that right there to me is a check in the plus column for Ricky Seals-Jones. If this guy was good enough for Andy Reid and the Chiefs, then obviously Ricky Seals-Jones has something going for him. All right, Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, talked a lot about his philosophy in putting together Washington's season opening 53-man roster. If you are a Washington football team fan, you need to hear what Ron said. I've got a lot to say about what Ron said. We'll get to all of that after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So it was on Thursday's show, episode 131, that we talked about what Landon Collins said at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday about the Washington football team's culture. I said, the culture. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Brucey, thank you. Uh, Landon was very blunt about the way that things had been during his initial time with Washington, how guys would complain about the heat, how things needed to change, and how the roster turnover that has taken place under Ron Rivera was much needed. Well, at Ron's post-practice press conference on Thursday, we got some follow-up to this, and we got some interesting admissions from Ron on roster construction for Washington as the cut down to 53 looms. Remember, it is by this Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern that each NFL team needs to be down to a 53-man active roster. This was Ron on Thursday on where he thinks he is in terms of rebuilding the Washington football team. I think we're, we're headed in the direction we want to be headed in. We like the quality of the young man we have on this football team. Um, you know, we believe these are guys that fit the way we want to do things. You know, Landon's done a great job, you know, uh, adjusting. I mean, he's, he's gone through three different systems. You know, he started, um, you know, somewhere else and ended up here. So he's a guy that we feel really good about. Um, I appreciate the fact he's noticed it because, you know, one of the things we are trying to do is we're trying to change things and, and, and put things in a position where, you know, we accomplish what our intent is, and that is to, to, to build a sustainable winning culture. And, and, and hopefully he can continue to be part of it because he's done such a good job for us. Now, I prior to that cut used the word rebuilding in regards to the Washington football team. It's easy to forget that the team still is rebuilding. Now, rebuilding in the NFL is different than rebuilding in MLB, the NBA, and the NHL. The NFL season is so short that you can win while rebuilding. You can have a new front office and a new head coach, go with younger players, not spend a lot of money on veterans, and still be competitive. Heck, Washington last season, in what was clearly a rebuilding season, won the NFC East. And I know the NFC East was terrible last season, but that's part of the point that I'm making. Rebuilding in the NFL doesn't mean that you're doomed to a bunch of 12 lost seasons for the next five years. In the NFL, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can rebuild, but still be competitive. And that's what Washington did last season and is trying to do again this coming season. Washington has a ton of younger players on the team, but Washington also has veterans, right? Like Ryan Fitzpatrick and Charles Leno Jr., who are set to play very prominent roles. This was Rod Rivera on Thursday on trying to strike that balance of building for the long haul and trying to be competitive this coming season. You know, that's one of the things that we have to take into consideration as, as we go through um, building the roster. You know, we have some guys that, that are immediate players, guys that, 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 you know, right now. But you also have to say, well, as we get to the bottom part of the roster, is right now better for us or looking to the future better for us? I mean, we will have those discussions. We've already had those discussions uh, a couple of days ago with the staff, uh, with, uh, with Martin Marty and, and their staff. And so as we go through this, that'll be a consideration when we have our conversations on, uh, on, uh, on Monday as we start getting ready to pair the uh, roster down. 
And of course, sometimes taking a player for the long haul can actually work out in the short term too. Think Jeremy Reeves last season. Ron opted to promote Jeremy Reeves from the practice squad to the active roster rather than sign Eric Reed to the active roster. And Reeves ended up playing well, started each of Washington's last three regular season games, started the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round. And Reeves in the 2020 regular season registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 81.2. We got more from Ron at his post-practice press conference on Thursday on this issue of team building for the Washington football team. Ron was asked if there are some position groups giving him more trouble than others in putting together Washington's season opening 53-man roster. Yes, there really are. Um, just because of the depth, you know, and, and you, when you get to the bottom part of that depth and it's really, it's a battle, you know, you have to, you, you want to be right. And so that, that's been the hard part for us the last few days, you know, because I, I will talk with Jack or, or Scotty or, or Nate, you know, about anything about a guy. Uh, and then I'll talk with Martin or Marty or, or, or Eric or Chris about a guy. Um, or two guys, or three guys, but at the same position trying to figure out, you know, is there an edge? Is there something that we like a little bit more about? And to somebody else's question earlier, am I thinking to the future? Because if we are, then that plays into that position as well. Because, you know, if you if you say, okay, we got these two guys now, but these two guys are, you know, a little older, you know, they're on the last year of their contract. And, well, here's this rookie who's, you know, you've, you got him for the next four. So those are all things that we, we, we consider. So there was another admission from Ron Rivera that not every decision is about this season. Not every decision is about the short term. He does make decisions based on the long term, and he should. Washington is not a win-now team. Washington is what I would call a can-win-now team. In other words, Washington can win now and is trying to win now, but the approach isn't this season or bust. You know, there's not this pressure, there's not this desperation to win now as there is with, say, the Green Bay Packers, given the Aaron Rodgers situation. Something else that came up during Ron's post-practice presser on Thursday with the cut down to 53 happening this Tuesday, does he feel like Washington as a whole is farther along this year as compared to last year at this time, given that we have had a pretty normal offseason and preseason, albeit a new look shortened preseason this year? Yes, I think we have a lot less, few, fewer questions going forward. I really do. Um, you know, and hopefully we, as a coaching staff, will make the right decisions. I mean, it, it's going to be tough. It really is. Um, this more so than last year because we know more. You know what I'm saying? So as opposed to last year where we, we, we assumed more. So this will be interesting. All right, so Ron says that there are fewer questions going forward. Quote, we know more as opposed to last year where we assumed more. End quote. That stood out to me. Uh, You wonder if Ron had Dwayne Haskins in mind when he said that. Remember, no quarterback competition at last year's training camp. Ron has said many times now that he regrets not having conducted an actual quarterback competition. And then we got this question during Ron's post-practice presser on Thursday on the issue of the present versus the future regarding roster construction. Does Ron find himself leaning more toward one than the other in terms of the present versus the future? You do. Because again, um, 
you know, you want to have success early, and you have to have the right kind of success early. And that's one of the things that, and I, I know I mentioned it yesterday, and I'm going to mention it again. It goes to the whole maturity thing. You know, you want to make sure we, we, we are where we need to be maturity-wise. Because, again, if, if we come in with the wrong attitude, we'll get our butts kicked. What do you mean by the right success? Um, if you have success and it's premature and it builds this, 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 uh, this air about you that's not right, you get your butt kicked. I mean, truthfully. But to me, the kind of success we had can be the right kind of success because, and I, I, and I know I talked about this after the season, we played a lot of young guys during some stressful times in seven games in the regular season, the last seven. We won five of those, too. And we were in playoff mode each one of those games because you had to win. We had to win. We had to put in, We put ourselves in position. We had to win to stay ahead. We had to win to stay ahead. And we did at the end. To me, that's, you know, you, you, you went through a, a, a tough situation. You found an ability to reach down and, 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 and find something to help you get through that. And that's stuff you build on. But if, you know, for whatever reason, we come out and say, we arrived, man, we got this, then we're not going to get better. We're not going to go back and learn from the basics. We're not going to understand what it takes to get back to where we need to be. That's what I'm concerned about. You know, and that's what I, I want to feel good about uh, when we get ready to play that first game, first regular season game. Yeah, so Ron says that you want to have success early, but you want to have the right kind of success. And then he gets into this idea of maturity. You know, maturity, attitude, accountability, reliability, these things matter a ton to Ron Rivera. These things are a huge part of this culture rebuild. Ron wants guys who are bought in. And if he has doubts about whether you're bought in, you're gone. This goes back to what Landon Collins said on Wednesday. The culture was a mess. And so fixing that culture requires this almost like cult of Ron approach to where if you're not part of the approach, if you're not part of the cult, if you're not drinking the Rivera Kool-Aid, then you're probably not going to be here for very long. One of the things that I talked about during the offseason was the Ron Rivera godfather-like baptism of fire, how Ron, both in terms of the roster and behind the scenes has been removing people from the team who in many cases had been with the team for a while, but who Ron perceived to be part of the problem or in the way or just not totally on board. And so this is a big part of Washington's roster construction right now too. You see, Ron essentially is trying to balance three things in assembling Washington's roster right now. A, get younger and more talented and more athletic, you know, the basic gist of a rebuild. B, still try to be competitive because winning is a big part of a culture rebuild. And let's be honest, winning will help to keep Dan Snyder bought in on you and thus help to keep the Danny from meddling in what you're doing. And C, get guys who are good guys and who are bought into what Ron is doing because that's a big part of a culture rebuild too. And so as we approach the cut down to 53, I think it's important to be thinking along these lines. The putting together of Washington's season opening 53-man roster is about many things. This is a unique juggling act that Ron Rivera is engaged in here. I always find team building and roster construction to be really interesting. And the Washington football team right now is at a very interesting point 
in terms of the team's roster. All right, so the preseason finale for the Washington football team is Saturday evening. Washington hosts the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field at 6. Now, the Ravens have won 19 consecutive preseason games. That means absolutely nothing to me. I bring it up, though, because it was on Wednesday night that the Orioles' 19-game losing streak ended. And so would it not be appropriate for the Ravens' 19-game preseason winning streak to end this week? as well. But of course, the result of the game does not matter. What matters more than anything is that Washington comes out of this game healthy. I almost don't even want to say this, but I'll say this while crossing my fingers and acknowledging the football gods in the sky. Uh, Washington has yet to suffer any significant injuries in training camp and the preseason. Shut up, Goldie. Why'd you say that? Now you're going to jinx things. No, I told you. I said that while crossing my fingers and acknowledging the football gods and the sky. That counteracts any potential jinx. Those are the rules. Anyway, yeah, so far so good for Washington when it comes to avoiding major injury this summer. Yes, we've had things like, you know, Curtis Samuel's groin and William Jackson III's leg, but the Samuel injury happened months ago. The Jackson injury doesn't appear to be serious, and I stress that word appear, But, you know, save for Samus Reyes and Tamara Hemingway was released on Thursday entering concussion protocol. What else really has happened in terms of injury since training camp started on July 27th? You want to say Kyle Allen? All right. He aggravated his surgically repaired left ankle on July 31st at that final training camp practice for Washington in Richmond this year. But Allen's been back for a while here. He returned to fully practicing on August 15th. That was weeks ago now. Washington has had very good injury luck so far. Let us hope that that continues. So we have a game on Saturday evening and then the cut down to 53 on Tuesday. This Tuesday, August 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern is the deadline by which each NFL team must cut down to 53 players. And so here are three things that I want to see from the Washington football team in its preseason finale on Saturday evening against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field. Number one, three first-half touchdowns. Yeah, I said it. Three first-half touchdowns. That's a big ask, I know, but let's aim high and see what happens. So Washington has been very mixed offensively over two preseason games. There have been some things to like. Ryan Fitzpatrick is averaging 12.83 yards per completion. That's excellent. Taylor Heineke has largely played well. We've talked quite a bit about Jarrett Patterson and how well he has done. But the bottom line is that Washington hasn't scored many points. Washington over two preseason games has totaled just 30 points, including just 13 first half points. Now, is this telling? Who the heck knows? Does this matter? Impossible to say for sure. But you would always rather score points than not score points. And it's not only scoring points, it's also that Washington hasn't had many red zone possessions. Washington has advanced to the red zone on just three first half possessions over two preseason games. Now, again, this all may mean nothing, but given that Ron Rivera last Saturday said that Washington would 100% game plan for this game against the Ravens, I do think that it's okay to put some stock in how Washington plays on Saturday evening. Now, exactly who is going to play for Washington and for how long, we do not know. This was Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Thursday on this issue of who will play and for how long. Um, Starters will play what we think they need to play. 
Okay, seriously. But if we see at least a good bit of the starters play for at least a decent chunk of the first half on Saturday evening, let's see some points. And they don't have to all come at the ends of lengthy drives. You know, I've talked about Washington needing to generate more explosive plays this coming season. How about we see some explosive plays on Saturday evening? Second thing that I want to see from Washington in its preseason finale on Saturday evening against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field, clarity regarding cuts. Let's see some guys who maybe are going to make Washington's season opening 53-man roster step forward or step off. For those of you who are Seinfeld fans, if you remember the episode in which George tries so hard to be friends with Elaine's new boyfriend, the rock climber, Tony, who was played by Dan Cortez, and after Tony gets in a rock climbing accident that he blames on George, Tony tells George to step off. Step off, George. I don't want to see you. Me? Step off? Yeah. Tony says you better step off, George. Oh, Tony, don't. Okay. (laughs) Step off, George, okay? Can you just step off? I I just... Step off. Step off. Step off. Yeah. Step off, George. Guys on the bubble for the Washington football team on Saturday evening against the Ravens need to step forward or step off. Step off? Yeah. Tony says you better step off, George. Yeah, step off. Fake receiver. It may be that Ron Rivera has no desire to keep seven receivers on his season opening 53-man roster, but if he is open to that, then let's see Dax Milne have a big game and seal his case. Or let's see DeAndre Carter have a big game and seal his case. Or let's see Isaiah Wright have a big game and seal his case. You think about corner. As I talked about on Thursday's show, episode 131, I believe that Tory McTire is making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. But what about Troy Apke? Is there hope for him or not really? If there is hope, then let's see him make some plays. Is Danny Johnson a factor? The feeling had been that he would again be Washington's primary kickoff returner this coming season. But if Jarrett Patterson is making Washington's season opening 53-man roster, and he can return kickoffs, then what's the point of Johnson, who did not play on a single defensive snap for Washington last season? Does Danny Johnson make a case for himself on Saturday evening? Think about safety. Could Derek Forrest make the team over DeShazer Everett? Now, Forrest, it appears, is dealing with injury right now, so we're not sure about his status, but could we see one of those guys distinguish himself on Saturday evening. You get the idea. Obviously, Ron Rivera isn't going to base cuts just on this game against the Ravens, but a guy killing it in this game can go a long way toward getting that guy onto Washington's season opening 53-man roster. And then the third thing that I want to see from Washington in its preseason finale on Saturday evening against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field, Dustin Hopkins deliver. Hopkins delivers. Yes, Hopkins delivers. There has not been much Dustin Hopkins conversation this week, but that doesn't mean that the Dustin Hopkins issue has just gone away. So Hopkins in the preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field last Friday night, three for three on field goals. This off going 0 for two on field goals in Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots on August 12th. But all three of Hopkins' makes against the Bengals were shorties. 
Hopkins had a late first quarter, 34-yard field goal, a late second quarter, 31-yard field goal, and a third quarter, 31-yard field goal. Hopkins' misses in that preseason opening loss at the Pats were on lengthier field goal attempts. He missed a first quarter 40-yard field goal attempt and a third quarter 50-yard field goal attempt. NFL kickers make their money on field goal attempts of 40 yards and longer. Anyone can make field goal tries of 35 yards or less as old D-Hop did in that win over the Bengals. The issue for Hopkins in his career has been field goal attempts of 40 yards and longer. Washington originally signed Hopkins in September 2015. Overall NFL accuracy on field goals of at least 40 yards over the last six regular seasons, so 2015 through 2020, is 75.93%. Hopkins' overall accuracy on field goals of at least 40 yards over the last six regular seasons with Washington is 72.09%. He has been below league average. And I concede that my methodology isn't perfect because I'm not factoring in kicking indoors versus kicking outdoors. But you get the general idea. D-Hop hasn't exactly been captain reliable on lengthier field goal tries. I would like for him to get some lengthier field goal tries on Saturday evening. It was interesting to me that Ron did not have Hopkins attempt a field goal early in that win over the Bengals at FedEx Field last Friday night. Washington's second offensive drive, which started at the Bengals' 45, but resulted in a first-quarter turnover on downs, had a fourth and one at the Bengals' 23. Ron went for it, as opposed to giving Hopkins a shot at a field goal. And then Antonio Gibson got stuffed on that uh, shotgun handoff run for no gain on a fourth and one at the Bengals' 23. Hopkins, at Wednesday's practice during Washington's kicking period, went four for six on field goal attempts, The misses were on 40 and 43-yard tries. Each miss went off the right upright. The makes were on 35, 40, 33, and 45-yard field goal attempts. Look, this Dustin Hopkins thing is still a thing. We are seeing kickers on teams with two kickers because, you know, those teams had actual kicker competitions getting cut across the league. There are options for Washington should the team want to move on from Dustin Hopkins. Saturday evening, hopefully, will provide a good test of whether Washington should move on from Hopkins. Rod Rivera can talk about the field goal operation all he wants, and that is a worthy topic. I mean, I'm not trying to be completely dismissive of the field goal operation, but, you know, Dustin Hopkins didn't just start being inconsistent on field goals with a new long snapper in the Cheeseman, Cameron Cheeseman. This is who Hopkins has been. He has been inconsistent. And so we shall see preseason game number three for the Washington football team Saturday evening against the Ravens at FedEx Field at six. The cut down to 53 is on Tuesday. By the way, Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Thursday gave a very compassionate take on this coming Tuesday. Um, you know, Tuesday is going to be a really tough day, uh, tough day for me personally, because I've been through it and I know what it's like when you have to bring a, y- a young man and cut him. Um, because I've been cut, and I understand that. And so I don't take that day lightly. Um, you know, I, I ask the guy if he's got a question, now's a chance to ask. And I will try to answer it, you know, as honestly as I can for him. Um, and a lot of times when I talk about the things that I've experienced as a player on the field, you know, that helps because I, I talk about my own experiences and then off the field. 
you know, I can I can relate. Guys have situations at home. They have circumstances. One of the things I tell the guys is, you know, if something happens, something's coming up, you know, let me know. Be honest with me about that, and 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 we can help. And that's been one thing I think the guys have have been pretty good about is calling ahead of time when there's an issue or something comes up. Because I get it, you know, two o'clock in the morning, your child wakes up and 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 he or she's sick. You know, and you've been up all night with mom, and 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 you know, and and you 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 know, you're trying to get everything calm. You're going to be late. Well, I can appreciate that, but I appreciate the fact that they call me and let me know that, and tell them, hey, don't worry about it. Get here when you can. I'll let your coaches know. So that that's you know, the voice of experience I think sometimes helps, and 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 it can calm some things down. Yes, it can. Big next few days here for the Washington Football Team. Well, there have been many bad losses for the Nationals this season. As bad losses go, a 7-5 loss at the Miami Marlins on Thursday night isn't that bad, especially when you consider the Nats battled, the boys battled, as Davey Martinez likes to say, as the Nats did score two runs in the top of the ninth inning. But the game is truly one of the worst games of the Nats season from a standpoint of when you look at the bigger picture, how you feel about a certain someone. Because Patrick Corbin in this game on Thursday night was an absolute disaster. And especially considering what he was coming off of and who he was facing, you could actually argue that this is the worst start in what has been a nightmare of a season for Patrick Corbin. Patrick Corbin in his previous outing had looked really good. And yes, it was just one outing, but it was an outing that offered hope. It was an outing that made you feel like, okay, this guy who has been so bad this season, maybe, just maybe, can end his season pitching better and feeling better about himself. Take you back to a 4-1 win at the Milwaukee Brewers this past Friday night. Corbin in that game, one run in six into third innings. He had seven strikeouts versus no walks. He allowed just three hits. He threw 61 strikes versus 31 balls on 92 pitches. And he did all of this throwing a ton of fastballs, which is what Davey Martinez had wanted Corbin to do. Thursday night, game three of a three-game series for the Nets at the Marlins. The two teams had split the first two games. The Marlins are one of the worst hitting teams in baseball. The Marlins entered games on Thursday, 25th out of 30 major league teams in team-weighted runs created plus at 88. 100 is league average. The Marlins ballpark is one of the worst hitting parks in the majors. The ballpark is spacious. You got to hit balls hard and long to go deep. And yet Patrick Corbin on Thursday night, coming off that previous outing, facing this opponent in that venue, ended up getting shellacked. Six runs in three innings. He gave up four hits, two homers and two singles. He issued two walks. He had three strikeouts. He threw just 36 strikes versus 22 balls on 58 pitches. This was an unmitigated disaster for Patrick Corbin. And again, it's not so much the what. The what was bad, but it's the who, i.e. who he was facing, and it's the when, i.e. him coming off that last outing, which was so encouraging. Because this was an outing that made you feel like, is there any true fix for this guy? Is there any legitimate hope left for this guy? See, all along with Patrick Corbin being so bad this season, I've always kind of clung to this thing of, it's hard to believe that this is really who he is now. 
He was so good for the Nationals in 2019. He was so clutch for the Nationals in that run to the 2019 World Series Championship. This is only his age 31 season. It's not like this is someone who is in his late 30s and is just, you know, on his last legs. In theory, he should have many years to go as a major league pitcher. He, of course, has plenty of seasons left on that contract, the six-year, $140 million contract that he signed with the Nationals in December 2018. But when you see him do as he did on Thursday night, you feel like throwing your hands up and just saying, what's the point anymore? It doesn't seem like this guy getting right is realistic at this point. And that's a painful thing to say. But at some point, you cross into that territory of, it's not just that he's struggling anymore. Now it's, this is just who he is. And the more he struggles, and the more of these outings that he piles up, the closer we get to just saying, this is just who he is, and there ain't no fixing him. Patrick Corbin on Thursday night allowed four runs in the bottom of the first. He issued a leadoff six-pitch walk of Miguel Rojas. Corbin did then get two outs, but we then got a two-out steal of second base by Lewis Brinson, and then Corbin gave up a two-out six-pitch walk of Jesus Sanchez, a two-out RBI single by Brian Anderson, and a two-out three-run homer by Jorge Alfaro to right center field for a 4-0 Marlins lead. The homer went and projected 417 feet for StatCast. That was some shot by Jorge Alfaro. Then came Corbin giving up two more runs in the bottom of the second. Leadoff first pitch single by Brian De La Cruz and a one-out two-run homer by Miguel Rojas to left field for a 6-0 Marlins lead. The homer went and projected 406 feet for StatCast. Corbin gave up the homer to Rojas, despite him at one point having been down to the count 1-2. Corbin did then toss a perfect bottom of the third, but he got pulled from the game due to being pinch hit for with the bases loaded and two outs in the top of the fourth. And I don't think anybody blamed Davey Martinez for pinch hitting for Corbin in that spot. I mentioned the two home runs allowed by Corbin. This is the thing. Patrick Corbin now has allowed 31 homers this season. Do you know that is a record for most home runs allowed by a Nats pitcher in a regular season. For all of the bad teams the Nats had in their initial days here in Washington, D.C., right? The 2005 team wasn't bad, uh, at least not in the first half of that season. But you think back to like 2006 through 2010, a lot of bad baseball authored by the Nationals. No pitcher had ever allowed 31 homers in a season until Corbin this season. And oh, by the way, Thursday night was August 26th. There is a lot of season left. There is a month plus left in this season for the Nationals. Who knows how high that home run total could end up being for Patrick Corbin. He's allowing a career worst 2.05 home runs per nine innings this season. And Patrick Corbin now, over 25 starts this season, has an ERA of 609. That is the worst ERA in the majors among qualified pitchers. Patrick Corbin quantifiably has been the worst pitcher in baseball this season. That is saying something, man. That, that, is, a, that is a major statement to say, and yet it is the truth. He is dead last among qualified pitchers in the majors in ERA. And like I said, 60-year, $140 million contract. This is only year three. 
it's not like Patrick Corbin is going to be removed from the rotation, okay? I mean, unless there's something physical going on with him, which as far as we know, there isn't. That's the thing too. He's been healthy. It's not like there's some nagging ailment that he's been dealing with throughout the year. As far as we know, he's been pretty much fine. So he's got to figure this out. And you know what? The Nats have got to figure this out because this isn't just about Corbin. The Nationals have got to find a way to get Patrick Corbin back to being the guy he was in 2019. Because while this ultimately reflects poorly on Corbin, him falling off a cliff like this over the last two seasons, because remember, he was bad last year. He's even worse, though, this year. This also doesn't look well on the Nationals, okay? This doesn't reflect well on Davey Martinez's coaching staff, especially the pitching coach, Jim Hickey. This doesn't reflect well on the Nationals baseball operations department, okay? Organizations are supposed to be equipped to fix guys. And instead, Patrick Corbin, it feels like it's getting worse, not better. Now, I know the Nats are working on this. They're well aware of Patrick Corbin's struggles. Maybe they're telling him to do things and he's just not doing them. We don't know. You know, it kind of feels like with this Corbin thing, there may be more than we're aware of. But as best as we can tell, Corbin's not some jerk or anything like that. He's not hurt. He's working hard. It's just not happening. This is really something, the way this guy has fallen off uh, first last season, but really more so this season. This season, in so many ways, could not be going worse for Patrick Corbin. And that outing on Thursday night, again, coming off the good outing he had at the Brewers last Friday night, facing a bad hitting team in the Marlins, facing those Marlins in that spacious ballpark, and Corbin ends up giving up six runs over the first two innings, six runs ultimately in three innings. Well, the Nats bullpen was good on Thursday night. Hey, you had that. Uh, Four Nats relievers combined to allow one run unearned in five innings on six strikeouts. Mason Thompson allowed an unearned run in two innings. Patrick Murphy made his Nats debut. Patrick Murphy is the guy who the Nats claimed off waivers from the Toronto Blue Jays on August 14th. Murphy had dealt with control and injury issues, but he was the Blue Jays' number 16 prospect per MLB Pipeline at the time of the waiver claim. I thought that this was a sneaky, smart acquisition by Mike Rizzo. Just because Patrick Murphy is a guy with some real talent. Now, he's battled injury and inconsistency, but this is a guy who can throw, and throw he did on Thursday night. So Murphy tossed a scoreless bottom of the six with two strikeouts, did give up a single lane to walk. Control can be an issue for him, but Murphy's velocity was in the upper 90s, okay? This guy's a flamethrower, and if you can harness that velocity in a proper direction, you might have something here with Patrick Murphy. Sam Clay tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh with two strikeouts. Ryan Harper tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth inning. Offensively for the Nets on Thursday night, Juan Soto with another big game. One for three with a two-run homer and two walks. The homer is what sticks with you because the homer was some shot. A one-out two-run homer to right center field in the top of the fifth to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-2. The homer went a projected 433 feet per stat cast and is the hardest hit home run of Juan Soto's career. An exit velocity of 114.1 miles per hour per stat cast. That was a rocket and that was a shot to the skies. The Miami skies, that home run by Juan Soto. The homer was just his third homer Since July 27th, he has not been getting a lot of pitches to hit, but Juan Soto continues to get on base like a madman. Like I said, two walks for him in this game. Top of the first, he drew a two-out seven-pitch walk, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. And Soto, in a two-run Nats ninth, drew a one-out five-pitch walk. He now has a major league-leading 100 walks on the season. 
His major league leading on base percentage on the season is up to 444. He's slugging 509. He has a 300 batting average. If the Nationals were a good team this season, Juan Soto would be an MVP candidate. He still should receive MVP consideration. He won't win MVP in the National League. But those offensive numbers are MVP caliber, a 300, 400, 500 season. And that on base is something else, 444. The next best on-base percentage in baseball this season is Bryce Harper's, 414. Juan Soto's major league leading on-base percentage is 30 points better than the next best on-base percentage in the majors this year. Just to give you an idea of the frequency with which this guy is getting on base. Josh Bell went two for five with an RBI single and another single. He in the top of the seventh had a two-out single despite having been down at the count at 1.02. And Bell in the Nets two-run ninth had a one-out RBI single. Victor Robles was back as an at starting center fielder and number one batter on Thursday night. Remember, we'd been seeing a lot of Lane Thomas as an at starting center fielder and number one batter. Thomas did go 0 for 4 in that uh, 4-3 10-inning loss at the Marlins on Wednesday night, but he did have a loud out in that game, and Thomas has been killing it here. Four consecutive starts for Lane Thomas as an at starting center fielder and leadoff batter. Victor Robles was said by Davey Martinez to have been under the weather, and he was finally back out there starting on Thursday night. Went one for five with a single. He had a leadoff single in the top of the first inning, but he then got caught trying to steal second base for the first out. You know, Victor Robles this year is just eight for 14 on stolen bases. That's a really bad success rate. And when you add that onto Victor Robles not hitting well, not hitting for power, not hitting balls hard, it's just a bad offensive profile that looks even worse. Like Victor Robles is very good defensively. And you would think at least, okay, well, he is fast. At least his base running should help you out. And not really this year. He runs into a lot of outs, and his success rate on steals isn't good. 8 for 14, that's nearly 50%. That's not good, okay? You want your success rate on stolen bases to be about 75%. If you're not at least at like 70%, you're actually doing more harm than good. You're doing more harm than good when you're just 8 for 14 on stolen bases on the season. Speaking of stolen bases, something that has really fallen off too since the national sell-off of late July is the Nationals' ability to control opposing teams' running games. The Marlins on Thursday night went three for three on stolen bases. The Nats were so good this season with Jan Gomes and to a lesser extent Alex Avila at throwing out opposing runners trying to steal. That is like gone bye-bye here. Now, the flip side is that Nationals catchers have been hitting well, and we've talked about that. Riley Adams, Tress Barrera, although Barrera didn't have a very good offensive game on Thursday night. He went 0 for 3 with a walk, left five men on base. But 3 for 3 were the Marlins on attempted steals on Thursday night. The Nats are not controlling the running game with any kind of frequency. And in that Marlins, 4-1 first was a Lewis Brinson two-out stolen base of second base. Barrera made a short throw that bounced by Alcides Escobar. So not a very good throw and certainly not a good catch by Alcides. Uh, This is something that, look, I guess you're going to have when you have young catchers, right? And you figure, okay, things were going to fall off when you made the sell-off. I get that. But that really stands out because, again, the Nats had been tremendous this season with Gomes and Davila at throwing out runners trying to steal. Gomes has been traded. Avila is still on the team, but he has, like, disappeared. The Nats on July 3rd placed Avila on the 10-day injured list retroactive to July 2nd with bilateral calf strains, and Avila is still on the 10-day IL. The Nats are clearly 
slow walking this and I think pretty clearly are just parking Avila on the 10-day IL the rest of the season going with the young catchers now in Riley Adams and Tres Pereira and that's just fine but there has definitely been a lessening of the Nationals ability to throw out opposing runners trying to steal. Next up for the Nats is a three-game series at the New York Mets. Game one, Friday night at 7-10, Paolo Espino will start. Game two, Saturday night, Sean Nolan will start. And game three, Sunday afternoon at 1-10, Eric Fetty will start. By the way, it's a joke that this game at the Marlins on Thursday was a night game. And then the Nats had to get on a plane and fly to New York. Not that baseball players travel in horrible conditions, and I'm not asking you to shed a tear for these guys, but I don't know why MLB allows for this. On a travel day, you should not be playing at night like that, especially for a flight Miami to New York that isn't that quick. I mean, I know it's like about three hours, but that's not nothing. Uh, I thought that was ridiculous that that game on Thursday night was a 7-10 start. That should have been at least a four o'clock start. Uh, I don't know why MLB allowed the Miami Marlins, and usually it's the home team that dictates the start times, to dictate a night start time uh, for a game that preceded the Nationals having to fly from Miami to New York. That's now 54-72 and on the season. The Mets, by the way, are 61-66. and Boy, have they fallen off. And the National League East continues to be terrible, with the exception of one team, the division-leading Atlanta Braves are 68-58 and on the season with a run differential of plus 87. Every other team in the division has a losing record. Every other team in the division has a run differential of minus 28 or worse. It makes no sense, and thus it makes perfect sense. The Orioles have gone from losing 19 consecutive games to now winning Two straight games as we now have our first Orioles winning streak since they won back-to-back games on July 30th and July 31st. The O's may be a major league worst 40 and 86 with a major league worst run differential of minus 223, but the O's now have a winning streak, a 13-1 win over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon to win the series two games to one. Joe Angel, if you would. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, they are. This series ended up being a series in which the O's totaled 31 runs. Here's the truth about the O's. Yes, they are rebuilding. Yes, they are tanking. But they're actually not a terrible hitting team. They're more like a middle-of-the-pack hitting team. The O's entered games on Thursday 17th out of 30 major league teams in team-weighted runs created plus. It's not bad, 17th out of 30. It's certainly not great. But, you know, again, it's middle-of-the-pack. The problem for the O's has been their pitching, which has been atrocious. But it wasn't atrocious on Thursday afternoon And that was due largely to Keegan Aiken. Yes, I said Keegan Aiken. Keegan Aiken has been one of many young Orioles starting pitchers who has been bad, very bad in 2021. Keegan Aiken, Dean Kramer, Jorge Lopez, Bruce Zimmerman, although for Zimmerman, 2021 has been more about injury than anything else. But Aiken entered Thursday with the following numbers over 18 games, including 11 starts at the major league level this season. An ERA of 7.92, a whip of 181. Those numbers are vile. And yet, what did Aiken do on Thursday afternoon? 
He had the best outing of his major league career. One run in seven innings on six strikeouts versus three hits, two walks, and a hit by pitch. He threw 62 strikes versus 30 balls. And what's funny is that his outing did not start off in a great way. Keegan Aiken gave up a leadoff homer to Shohei Otani in the top of the first. But Aiken allowed just two singles in terms of hits the rest of his start. It is one game. It may mean nothing. Or maybe, just maybe, it's a sign that things finally are clicking for this guy. Only time will tell. But the biggest disappointment by far for the O's this season has been the lack of progress of their young starting pitchers at the major league level. And one thing that being a rebuilding and tanking team affords you is the opportunity to just put guys out there and say, all right, you know, this season is not about wins and losses. You're going to get your reps and you're going to hopefully grow. And maybe, just maybe, we are seeing finally some growth here from Keegan Aiken. You would like to exit this season with at least one of these young starting pitchers on the uptick. Maybe Aiken can be that guy. I mean, it's one outing, like I said, so we got to see more. Uh, The O's took Aiken in the second round of the 2016 MLB draft. This season is Aiken's age 26 season. As for the Orioles offense, what a great series. Like I said, 31 runs over the three games. Ryan Mountcastle ends up having a big series. He, in the 14-8 loss to the Angels at Camden Yards on Tuesday night, hit two home runs. And Mountcastle, in this 13-1 win over the Angels at Camden Yards on Thursday afternoon, was good again. He had a one-out five-pitch walk in the Orioles' six-run fifth. A six-run fifth, by the way, that also included a two-out first-pitch grand slam by the ex-NAD Pedro Severino. Mountcastle had a two-out first-pitch double in the bottom of the six, and Mountcastle had a first-pitch RBI single in the Orioles' five-run eighth. Mountcastle now has a career-best 17-game on base streak, and Mountcastle on the season now has an OPS of 803. Mountcastle and Cedric Mullins, the two brightest spots in terms of Orioles position players at the major league level this season. Two legitimate building blocks. Eminem, Mountcastle, and Mullins. And I guess if the O's ultimately keep Trey Mancini, you can include him too. Another M. So you have M, M, and M potentially here for the O's. Next up for the O's, a true test of whether they're actually playing better here lately. A three-game series at Oriole Park at Camden Yards against the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays, who have owned the O's this season. The O's during their 19-game losing streak went 0-7 against the Rays. Yeah, the Rays were responsible for more than a third of the Orioles' losses during that 19-game losing streak. Game one Friday night at 7.05. Matt Harvey will start for the O's. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Now, I contemplated doing a special Washington football team postgame installment of the pod for Sunday off the preseason finale against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening. But I'm going to just stick with the normal Monday through Friday schedule for next week. Presumably, we'll have a day after the game press conference for Ron Rivera on Sunday. So Monday show, episode 133, will be loaded as we'll postgame what happens against the Ravens and go through the best of what Ron says on Sunday. And the cut down to 53 is on Tuesday, although we could start getting cuts on Monday 
or even Sunday. Who knows? Enjoy the game. Have a great weekend. And I'll talk to you on Monday. Step off, George. I don't want to see you. Me? Step off? Yeah. Tony says you better step off, George. Oh, Tony, don't. Okay. (laughs) Step off, George, okay? Can you just step off? I I just... Step off. Step off. Step off.